This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. The administrative state has been a frequent theme on this podcast, as has the intellectual support for its growth. A chapter of a new anthology on rethinking conservative priorities, titled Up from Conservatism from Encounter Books and Claremont Books, though adds a historical analysis of the rise and rise of the administrative state, to use Professor Gary Lawson's terminology. The author of that chapter, A Century of Impotency, is someone who has been a close friend of JWI for many years, the then Solicitor General of Idaho, Theo Wold. Theo was the Solicitor General of Idaho as recently as early October 2023. I say that because in between when we recorded this podcast and now when we are releasing it, things have been moving quickly, and Theo has announced that he is leaving his role as SG to join the Air Force Reserves to train as a commissioned intelligence officer. But back to Theo's biography. Previously, he served as the acting assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice and deputy assistant to the president for domestic policy under President Donald Trump. Prior to his three and a half years of service in the Trump White House, Theo previously served as deputy chief counsel to U.S. Senator Mike Lee on the Judiciary Committee. Theo holds a BA from Georgetown, an MLIT from the University of St. Andrews, and a JD from the University of Notre Dame. He clerked at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit for our dear friend Judge Janice Rogers-Brown and at the U.S. District Court for the District of Puerto Rico. Theo was a Washington Fellow at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. Theo and his wife Megan, another one of our dearest friends, have four children and live in Boise, Idaho. Also joining us on the podcast is Stephen Sills, one of our interns at the James Wilson Institute. We hope you enjoy the program. Theo, it's a real treat to have you on our Anchoring Truths podcast. Um, For the benefit of our listeners who don't know about your background, you worked in the Trump administration uh, in the Domestic Policy Council, and you had a unique perspective, therefore, working kind of within the belly of the belly of the beast um, of the federal administrative state in the nerve center in the White House. And this, of course, made you very familiar with the depths of the problems of uh, the uh, administrative state and what others have come to term the deep state. Do you want to walk us through quickly why is the growth of the administrative state in 2023 a problem for anything like a conservative governing um, philosophy or just conservative jurisprudence? And what are the roots in the history of this problem? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, as a starting place, so I was in the White House for three and a half years, um, both on the Domestic Policy Council and then uh, at the in the Office of American Innovation, which was um, you know, a, a sort of a competing policy shop for a time with DPC. And I, I think, you know, my the lesson I learned from that experience is is that there's a bit of um, an untruth or some sloppiness to the conservative, the reflexive sort of conservative aspiration for smaller government. And 
And the, the sloppiness is that it's not exactly the size of the agencies that matter or matters most politically. It's their lack of accountability. So you can have small agencies uh, that no one really argues about their, you know, their mission or their constitutionality or their size, whether it's their budget or their total footprint in terms of personnel. But the real problem is that they do not respond in any meaningful way to political uh, leadership. And so the way that sort of translates is that you will have a change in the personnel of the executive branch. A new chief executive is elected and sits in the Oval Office, and there will be no requisite change in the policy that is promulgated by these administrative state bureaucrats. Things will just keep going as they have always gone. And I think that's a that's a real Obviously, it's a danger to Republican form of government, but it's a real threat to uh, the citizens' own conception of what it means to be a self-governing republic. And, and what I mean there specifically is the average American casts a vote thinking, well, I don't like the kinds of work that the Environmental Protection Agency is doing these days. I, I think they are overly burdensome on small businesses, on the ability of states and municipalities to you know, build important infrastructure projects like water reservoirs or new roads. So I want that changed. I'm gonna vote for this candidate. Ah, my candidate was elected, so now I will see a change. Mm-hmm. And then four years later, the same regulations, the same general approach to the, the law of environmental conservation or stewardship, whatever positive you know, connotation you put on that, will continue. It will be the same. and. Uh, Americans growing, I would argue, their growing cynicism with the efficacy and the accountability of the federal government is rooted in the problem of the administrative state. That no matter what they do to express their preferences at the ballot box, there is no general directional change in the way the federal government makes law. And and that would be the last part uh, in answering this, this first question here, is no one should be confused that the administrative state bureaucracy makes law. When a guidance memo issued by the Department of Education can change the entire contours of Title IX, of competitive sports, of educational curricula, even the memos that they are promulgating has the full force and effect of law. And to say nothing of their ability to promulgate a regulation, interpret the regulation, and then either through civil and criminal penalties enforce the regulation. So let me ask you this, though. So guidance documents get picked up by the media. And it's through the media that a policy becomes debated and discussed. How much does the media have a role in translating what is just, you know, from the from from the court's perspective, not binding, but becomes part of the policy discussion and therefore becomes the presumptive policy against which you're going to compare whether something is legal or illegal? Yeah, I think the media obviously plays a part, um, and it's probably best exemplified not in the trans ideological context, but um, in in immigration policy. So that was one of the first portfolios I had in the Trump White House. I was hired to be a senior advisor on immigration, and DACA sort of exemplifies this outcome. I mean, if you recall, DACA as a policy, if we can be so liberal in the application of that term. 
uh, is promulgated essentially in a dear colleague letter that then uh, DHS Secretary Janet Napolitano issues to the White House. Right. It's not a it's not a presidential memorandum. It's not an executive order. And we can argue about their full force under the law. It's essentially a dear colleague letter. And it's, you know, dear Barack, I think you have executive um sort of prosecutorial discretion. This is the category of people we're going to exempt from the Immigration and Naturalization Act, signed Janet. And uh, the, the one thing I'll quibble with what you said, Garrett, is uh, courts construed that as having full force and effect of almost as if it was a rulemaking. And why do I say that? Because when we went to go take down that memo in the Trump White House, we had the very naive view that, well, okay, a memo trumps a memo. Mm -hmm. Right. They issued this memo. And if we want to get rid of the memo, all we have to do is write a subsequent memo that says this is no longer how we understand the appropriate exercise of prosecutorial discretion of the president of the United States. And the John Roberts court said, no, if you want to displace a guidance letter, you've got to go through an affirmative rulemaking. That's right. I That's right. This notice and comment, the Federal Register, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So on the first part, yes, the media definitely has a role in amplifying this. I think the second part, though, is what what it means to have um, this ever expanding enforcement arm of administrative agencies working in state government. Now, I can tell you outside of a door knock from the FBI or summons or subpoena from the U.S. attorney, what most local authorities, county governments and you know, superintendents of local school districts fear the most is an investigation from the Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education. And they will tell you, like, we, we already have constrained budgets. We, we already have shortages and resources to pay for our teachers or extracurricular sports coaches and therapists. If we get slammed with litigation or just a responsiveness to an investigation brought from OCR, it, it could shut us down. And so the guidance letter, once backed by the full force of the attorneys and the counsel office of something like the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, becomes something much more onerous and something much more meaningful. And you will get local authorities complying with the guidance letter because of their fear of the consequences that will come from the investigatory arm of an administrative agency. That's stunning. And and I think you know, it's not just the case, um, you know, in the state of Idaho, where right now you're the solicitor general. We even remember just to you know speak volumes about not only the, you know, the threat of possible litigation, but the threat of, you know, closer media uh, scrutiny. We had a president of the United States um, in 2020 say that he was afraid to remove a bureaucrat, granted the, the head of one of his agencies, you know, Anthony Fauci from NIAD, because of what the media would do to him if he was to even diminish his role, not even remove him. And that's pretty stunning, right? We have the head of the executive branch afraid of acting, you know, out of out of you know media scrutiny about removing his his subordinate. What do you think that says about, you know, the interplay of the media and the office holders within the administrative state? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, Fauci is is sort of an exemplary case because the usual argument that I think rule of law constitutionalists, because I want to use that term to be expansive. This isn't just an ideological partisan divide. It's not just Republicans versus Democrats, but anyone who has real concerns about having a regime that actually comports with the law and is responsive to the, the real sovereign, the people, and Fauci is a is a is a unique example because what we usually say is well it's just faceless nameless bureaucrats who you couldn't even pick out of a lineup who are making these decisions. Fauci is actually the other end of the spectrum, which is when a 
non-democratic, and what I mean by that, not accountable in any meaningful way to the electorate. The citizens cannot adjudge the performance of Anthony Fauci when a non-elected bureaucrat becomes more powerful than the president of the United States, or at least in an instant, can play checkmate on the chessboard with the president of the United States. That is a commentary on the role that the media plays, because how did Fauci get there? It was through the steady cultivation of close contacts in the media. It was the development of a media persona or profile dating all the way back to the AIDS crisis in the late 80s. And the other part of it also is the very thing that most Americans think about their government. We don't have lifetime sinecures. You know, that's what you would see in Venezuela. That's, you know, a failed European state like you know, communist Romania. Turns out to be true, untrue. We do have lifetime sinecures. I mean, Anthony Fauci has essentially, you know, you can look at it on the, the clean ledger sheet and say, well, no, there were some modifications in service time here and there. But for all intents and purposes, he's been in that job since before I was born. And, and that unto itself is a real problem. But at the same time, a commentary on the exhaustive authority that the administrative state has. Right. Because part of Anthony Fauci's power base in, in D.C. was, well, I know, Anthony, I work with these pro projects like this for years. You would hear uh, members of Congress, even Republicans say that he's a trusted name because I've done, you know, uh, anti-malaria or anti-Ebola advocacy with Anthony Fauci in the mid 1990s. And so that continuity that as an individual bureaucrat can develop ends up being a significant uh, role in, in their ability, as I said, to ultimately check the president of the United States. I am too important. I have too many followers in the media for you to get rid of me. And do, do you think there's a place for government by experts at all in the future of conservative governments? Because there's some on the right, such as Adrian Vermeule and others, who actually treat the administrative state as a necessary feature of government administration and part of the solution to the problem they see. And there are others who've argued that the sort of James Landis premise that we live this is modern, complicated world that requires that that just requires administrators. And in, in your chapter up from conservatives, you also implore your readers to pay heed to Landis and his contributions or the early rise of the administrate. Can you talk a bit more just for our readers why they should care about James Landis and his contribution to this project? Yeah. I mean, so I think the archaeological dig here is to go back you know, to the turn of the 19th century, there are any number of sort of philosophical antecedents to the American progressives, whether it's Emile Durkheim or Auguste Comte, who sort of saw the science of politics as being one that was in, indeed like a natural science. So apply objective rules and maxims to politics, you will get governing principles, and then essentially let the experts follow the principles. Um, so the modern progressive project, whether it's Hiram Johnson or Woodrow Wilson, essentially adopts this. And that's sort of their covering fire in a democratic representative republic, right, is to say, look, it's not like we're handing the keys over to Ming Dynasty courtiers or oligarchs. These are people drawn from the citizenry, just like you and I, who have a certain level of expertise, whether that's in hygiene and sanitation or uh, water system management or housing construction, right? Because remember the context in which this really comes to, to be the forefront of national political debate is what do you do with the tenements? Um, what do you do with packing plants and unsafe working conditions? And the screen that the progressives use is these won't be men and women who govern through prejudice, 
They will be free of their sort of political priors. Instead, they will govern objectively according to scientific law. That's a myth. I mean, it's, it's a myth and it's a very impoverished commentary, I think, on human nature. And we may buy this now and then when it comes to Article Three judges, they put on a robe and suddenly they become angelic figures. I would argue that's also a myth. But we've lived under this myth essentially for 100 years, that there are experts who are governed simply by science. And what I mean by science is objective criterion, and they set aside their personal biases or prejudices or political affiliations to do so. The second part of this is the concomitant rise of the size and scale of what the government thinks is its province happens at the same time as you start to replace political patronage, figures that are accountable in one way or another to the to the electorate with experts. And the experts say, yeah, we should actually be promulgating nutrition standards for American citizens. Yeah, we should actually manage forests uh, and dictate what species of trees can be planted where. Yeah, as you both know, in Wickard v. Filburn, we should monitor the total uh, supply of wheat that is grown in the country and dictate to individual farmers whether or not they can sell a certain portion of that crop yield on the open market. Uh, So the problem for conservatives is we have accepted the first part of the argument in one way or another. Modern life is too complex. It has too many problems that are too sophisticated for average citizens to understand. Uh, So self-governance, sure, it still exists, but self-governance filtered through experts who will rule uh, through scientific objective laws. And there's no better example of this than, you know, the Fed. Mm -hmm. That is is the ultimate expert control. They know better. They're economists. They're bankers. They understand the flow of money, the objective laws of inflation, how to control the labor market. So tut tut, member of Congress who is a farmer or a dentist, leave this to the experts and they'll give you periodic updates on what they are or are not doing in your name. The second part of the thesis is the part where most conservatives object to which is, you know, essentially to say, we don't like this micromanaging control over wheat production. And we don't like you telling us what types of light bulbs we can use in our houses. Um, we don't like you telling us what constitutes organic farming and, and isn't organic farming. And I think our failure as conservative, uh, you know, lawyers or legal theorists or academics is to not see that the two are linked together. The moment you enshrine that government can only occur through experts, you are going to get meddlesome, you know, capacious rulemakings and involvement of government bureaucrats in every facet of human life. So if I could just finish, I would fall into the camp, I think, of because I think the, the caricature of the objection to this argument or the caricature of my argument would be, oh, that guy is the dude who thinks that there should be no FAA, that anyone with a basic interest in aviation should be able to fly commercial airliners, or that's the guy who's willing to sit on the table and let the local farmer perform open heart surgery on him because he hates experts. No, of, of course, there's a role and a place for truly cultivated vocational insight. If you're a physician and you've developed your skill set, oh, of course. We should welcome your input, but we certainly shouldn't create a system of government that eliminates the political accountability, even for experts. I don't care if you're an infectious disease expert, the moment you start dictating transportation, education, uh, and, you know, know, general welfare policy to the people of the country, 
I mean, you're a political leader now and you should be accountable to those the, the citizenry. Yeah. So the hope is that Congress in some way, shape or form can cultivate the habits of mind to be able to, you know, actually perform the kind of you know prudential judgments that I think you've argued successfully, and you do in your chapter, uh, in Up from Conservatism, that members of the administrative state have arrogated unto themselves the authority to decide on, and then the judges have uh, as well. They've arrogated the authority to decide and to bless that this delegation of power from Congress was justified. Now we may get a change in that with the. Uh, Chevron um, decision um, being challenged this term at the Supreme Court, but it's far from clear that a decision of the Supreme Court, even in this Loper Bright case in, uh, in which Chevron's being reviewed, will lead to anything um, uh, even remotely like what I think you would want to see. So since the New Deal, Congress you know, has been sort of the eager handmaiden of the administrative state by siphoning off its own legislative power and oversight responsibilities to you know, this administrative appar- you know, you know, collection of apparatuses, have they bought into the land Landisian or Landesian or Landisian premise um, themselves? And do you think that their kind of their reflexes have atrophied to the point where the answer is not going to come from within Congress? It's going to come from outside Congress, our own ability as citizens to call forth a better class of uh, Congress people. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a, a founding father fanboy, but um, this objection again that well, you know, Theo Wold and people who think like him hate experts. They anticipated that objection. Where are the experts supposed to go? Congress. That that's where you ply your trade as you know, as a, a Roger Sherman, you know, your local cobbler, or someone like you know, Ben Franklin. You're a scientist with an advanced understanding of the natural sciences. Yeah, you're in Congress writing the laws. That's the natural place for, for that expertise. So that said is like the macro principle underneath that, yeah, most certainly Congress has bought into this. And for a variety of reasons. Number one, this is not profound. Many people have said this before me, but it's it's a perfect electoral advantage for members of Congress. That's not me. I didn't write that law. We wanted you to have clean water. That's all we wanted. We left the specifics to the Environmental Protection Agency and those faceless, nameless bureaucrats, they did it again. They really, they really got your go. I will do my best to exercise oversight over what they're doing. And as I've said in, in many forums, what does oversight look like for Congress? Oversight is members of Congress who don't, uh, in many ways, in many ways, do not understand the inner workings of an administrative agency, asking that administrative agency to give us the information give us the data so that we can properly then ask you questions about the data and the information. I mean, it's just a complete cul-de-sac of of incompetence. The third piece, so uh, sorry, uh, there's an electoral advantage. The second piece is, uh, I think to your point, and that's the right language, has been a general atrophy. I don't think most members of Congress, even if they were to sit down, know how to frame a bill. And I've said this before, and I think, you know, people in some ways criticize me. You think the superpower that young people in D.C. should have is drafting legislation? Yes, I do, because it's a basic, if you will, literacy of a self-governing republic and members of Congress can't do it. Why? It takes in two forms or how I should say. One, they rely on legislative services to write legislation for them. They go they go to ledge council. Hey, we have an idea. Draft it. Okay, so they've already abandoned their province in even a small way. And then two, they leave the, leave the actual governing details to the agency. This is or, just the framework 
and the agency will fill in how they will actually operationalize this piece of legislation. And so I think their power has generally atrophied in significant ways. And the third piece I would say is a lot of this supposed deadlock, gridlock, inefficacy of Congress is rooted in the idea that Congress is doing a significant projects that the people cannot actually exercise proper accountability over. And how are they able to do these giant omnibuses, the, the giant healthcare bills, the, you know, the creation of new entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security, because they know they don't have to write specifics. The agencies will do it for them. If you were to change that mentality, the very process of legislation in Congress would become simpler. So all of these sort of Band-Aid ideas like, well, if it can't fit on one page, then you know it can't be heard in committee or uh, the RAINS Act approach. Well, if it's over a million dollars, then we really have to weigh in on it. That's that's all just you know shifting deck chairs on on what is a sinking ship. And the ship here is is the legislative branch of our tripartite scheme of, of governance. And the last thing that I'll say is a lot of people put their eggs in this Chevron basket. You're right, Garrett, to say that I'm I'm I'm. It's not it's not sufficient for me. Um, and in part because you know do the archaeological dig once more. Chevron was understood by conservatives, even going back as far as, you know, Senator um, Taft in Ohio as a check on the judiciary. And there was a real desire to ensure that activist Warren Court type liberal judges weren't managing prison systems, weren't taking over through either judicial edict or consent decree um, transportation systems. And they were tired of uh, you know, even in the criminal justice context, sentencing or, you know, schema that judges would produce that ran afoul of actual statutory constitutional enactment. So you don't get to dictate to the agency what it will or will not do. No one elected you. The agency will understand its own rulemaking capacity and interpret it as much. So Chevron as like this giant boogeyman now was actually our idea. It was a conservative idea. And I think I, in, in the book chapter, sort of categorize it as yet another failure to get at the real root of the problem. And the root here is that we have conditioned ourselves to accept that self-governance is impossible in the modern age and that we have to rule, be, be ruled by experts. And those experts can look like Anthony Fauci or they can look like Anthony Kennedy. Yeah, we had a great podcast uh, about six months ago with when Jesse Miriam and I both reviewed this book by Tom Merrill called The Chevron Doctrine. And- <laughs> In general, um, you know, what what Jesse and I agreed on is that uh, we both think that the Chevron doctrine needs to be understood more as this bigger picture. Like what were the you know, what were the stakes that were going on um, that led to Chevron? Not so much like, you know, what does the two step formula, you know, mean, you know, from some kind of like, you know, Oracle of Delphi type of analysis. (laughs) And uh, really what comes next is far more, you know, uh, significant than, you know, what you know, Chevron itself has stood for. And that's why, for example, I think Tom Merrill's analysis of Chevron was quite helpful because what Merrill said, which was, which was, I think, you know, really important from a, uh, like an inner workings of the judiciary uh, analysis, it was very useful. He said that lower court judges gave Chevron after its adoption, much more of an effect because they preferred Chevron to what predated Chevron, because yeah. Chevron was an easy to apply two-step formula that it, yeah. uh, that involved far fewer judicial resources than the multi-factor test that predated it. And so 
lower courts, they just worked hand in hand with didn't matter which administration was in office at the federal level, because you had lower court judges rubber stamping whatever came out of you know each administration. And the, each administration liked it because it defended their own prerogative. So once again, it's this removal of basic authority once again, from from the Congress, but also you know from what we would call a traditional you know judicial review. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's spot on. And that will be the question: if Chevron is to fall in this term, what will replace it? And this is where I think it's good to temper enthusiasm, which is I mean we know we know what Chevron is, and we know the ills that it is propagated. But uh, what comes next could actually end up being worse. What about the arguments made by some conservatives on the right that the sort of congressional atrophy is too far gone to pursue that renewal and that the only way out of our present crisis isn't through a sort of deconstruction of the administrative state, but rather the expansion and supporting of a rulership of conservative elite into those places? What do you think about the arguments made by Vermeule and some others that these are institutions that can be co-opted from within? Is it intellectually defensible? Is there a way for conservatives to do that? Or is it that Philip Hamburger is, is right? I I think uh, not not to be too uh, dismissive, but I think there's a, the, the basic maxim that uh, Churchill offered, I think paraphrasing de Gaulle, which is it's easy to dream up these fantastical regimes when the assumption is that you will be the one who rules. And this is common among a certain class of sophisticated credentialed, uh, I would argue, experts, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley. They assume that when in this new regime, they will be the ones entrusted with pulling the levers of power. And um, I'm probably too too much uh, of a a student of Michael Anton to to get on board with that project. I I still, I would agree with Anton that um, our present regime may have a lot of pathologies but it's certainly one at least worth thinking through how we would solve those pathologies. So I don't know. I think the expansion of the administrative state, um, what that means, what it ultimately means now, and people should be clear-eyed about this, given the the, the advances in technology that we're already seeing, is essentially Jeremy, Jeremy Bentham's full panopticon, right? I mean, the expansion of administrative state is a government that can see and know and hear everything uh, its citizens are doing at all times. And I think a a reasonable objection to me offering that would be, well, aren't we already there? And yeah, in many ways we are, Uh, but we still have the fig leaf and however atrophied, we still have these organs with the connective tissue of self-governance. And I don't know, I think those are worth, they're worth fighting for in whatever transitive stage we're in currently. Get back to me with that question in five years, Stephen. But but will will it be necessary to get back to you in five years if we do not have a Republican administration starting in 2025? Or will we be, be so far gone, Theo, in your opinion? Well, I would argue that we are pretty far gone. I mean, my 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 metaphor, if you will, is unless you're one of those uh, guys who finds their way onto ESPN three or four or five, whatever channel that is where they show the world poker tournament. Um, unless you're a really advanced poker play- player, most people don't know they've lost a game of poker until the very end, right? <laughs> they're, they're playing out a losing hand 
and they don't even know it. And I think in many ways, that might be us in many ways. But I, yeah, certainly, in many, it would probably be the case that if there is not a Republican president who's willing to prioritize this, because I think you both have hit on this in a very important way, which is the rules of the game also dictate and favor that a Republican president stay within the, the bounds of the game. I mean, you want the Bureau of Labor Statistics to be pumping out a monthly jobs reports just like anybody else. Uh, you want the Department of State to exercise its, you know, its authorities and intelligence gathering when you're president as well. So presidents of a conservative Republican bent have not forsworn the administrative state. In fact, they've in many ways put it on steroids. So if there isn't a Republican president in January of 2025 who's willing to prioritize a systematic dismantling of the administrative state and its intelligence apparatus. Like, yeah, I think. Um, but there's, you know, at that point, there are other ways for. And this discussion isn't it, it's not meaningless. It has a lot of important value because I still think it's very it's useful and it's instructive for us and people who are interested in these kinds of ideas and conversations to think through what went wrong. And in, and in thinking through uh, um, that transitive stage to a different regime type, how would you, how would you play the game of poker over again? Um, and and what, what cards would you play differently? Do you see it primarily as a problem of personnel or unimaginative policy matched with lack of any kind of boldness? You say boldness, I would say it's ruthlessness. That's what's lacking. Um, a ruthless application of, if, if we want to be, I guess you'd say technical about it, the constitutional regime that we were given by the framers. I think, I think Yarvin's quite good on this, where he says, you know, it's, it's so fascinating that Americans you know, persist with this fiction that there's like a continuous thread connecting the early republic to present day America. At least the French are more honest about this. You know, there's the first, second, third, fourth republics because they acknowledge the sea change in structure and in law. And so part of our, our disadvantage is we want people to believe that the, um, the Administrative uh, Procedures Act didn't wreck an entirely new form of government, that Reconstruction didn't actually change the contours of the Founders' Republic, but they did. They, they changed the trajectory of the country. So part of it is being honest with ourselves about the kind of regime that we live under currently. But I would say this just obsession on the right with personnel is it's important. It's it's definitely important. I don't. Yeah, you must have you them. must have seen it when you were working in the White House, when you looked around, you said, really? Like, <laughs> this is yeah, supposed to be but, the belly of the beast where where the you know, where the creme de la creme come and. Yeah. We, we can't even all agree on what the problem is. Yeah, nearly every day. I mean, there was a criticism lodged of me after the White House. I was interviewing for a different job and the employer asked some of my colleagues, not my own references, but you know, people that they were familiar with. And one of the, the, the you know, references they, they contacted said, well, the problem with Theo was that when he settled on a policy idea, he would brook no objection and he would never let go of it. And I remember thinking to myself, it wasn't that I settled on a policy idea. It was that we were instructed by the democratically elected president of the United States. It was his idea. And it, it doesn't matter as long as it's lawful or plausibly in a federal court, you could argue it's within the domain of the chief executive's authority. It's for us to ensure that we actuate the president's vision and the president's policy. That alone was a constant daily grind in the Trump White House. 
of people who would either subvert or supplant their own wisdom for the president's. I, so personnel matters. But what I would say, why I'm I'm not entirely sold that personnel is everything, is the president gets to make what? How many appointees? 4,000 political appointees. And most Americans, when you give that th- that number to them, they'll say, wow, it's an enormous amount of people that he appoints. How many federal employees? Four and a half, close to five million. And that's exclusive of sub-vendors and subcontractors. So you're expecting an army of 4,000 to hold down and keep account of nearly 5 million. Even the British Civil Service didn't have those kinds of expectations. I mean, those are like Thermopylae numbers, right? Like a group of 20 are going to hold off an army of, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So my point is, no matter how effective and good and mission-aligned personnel is, they're going to be operating in asymmetrical conditions. The, the bureaucracy has more resources they have greater numbers. And the most important thing, as I always remind people, the bureaucracy has time and they know that. They know that if they slow walk, they delay, they ask that, oh, we've got one last legal objection we really need to work through. They know how long a rulemaking process takes. I assure you, they were very well aware of how long it would take to start public charge, take it through, uh, the interagency policy process and get it finally approved. They knew that that was a two-year project. And if they could just delay it a little bit, they would they would ultimately kill its enforcement. So I, I think personnel, even if you had a crack team of commandos who were really actually mission aligned with the duly elected president of the United States, there's only so much they can do. I mean, at the same time, though, you could see, a, let's say, a president uh, like Ron DeSantis come in and say, on the one hand, I have the authority to sign any bill that comes before me that will have Congress take back its authority um, in these you know myriad areas where you know the administrative state you know has had this you know uh, these broad delegations. But then on the other hand, he's going to say, until that day comes, I am going to flex the powers of this office so greatly in the you know in the legal ways that I see fit to redound towards conservative policies that you know benefit you know, the common good and, and in my view, um, you know, the American people. And so you could have on your hands a president that is making that public argument. But if that president does make that argument, do you think that sacrifices the kind of wholesale, you know, more like a, a sea change that you would say needs to be effectuated? Yeah. I mean, I mean, take the travel ban, for example, and they didn't like it. I mean, the left found it to be a distasteful policy, but it was completely without argument within the bounds of the discretionary authority given to the president under the Immigration and Naturalization Act. One million percent. And throw on the additional layer of, you know, that fig leaf that the Obama administration and the Clinton administration would use always. Well, it's a national security question. You don't get to look at this, judges. And yet they were able to enjoin that. They were able to whittle it down and they were able to to limit it. And then, you know, it sparked a, a debate among Democrats in Congress as to whether or not they should go in and re-engineer that 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 section of the INA to curb this authority going forward. And the point being that President Trump did, in essence, what a, what a DeSantis would do. And it ended up in Article three. Hmm. And the question is just when I say ruthless, are you going to have a president who's willing to make this kind of issue? the growth and the power of the administrative state and the intelligence apparatus, the central thesis of his presidential administration. 
I don't I don't know if Ron DeSantis is willing to do that. I don't know if Vivek is willing to do that. Maybe, mm-hmm. but it would have to be someone who would say, if they're not going to comply with the direction that I have given in this executive order or uh, in setting this new policy, then lock the doors. Lock the doors at the Department of Education. I'll give you a month to get them ship shape, Secretary. And in the absence of that, I'm the president. I'm taking over. And we're just going to prevent these people from obstructing my duly authorized authority under the Constitution. I don't know if anyone's willing to do that when they're talking about fighting inflation or changing you know, U.S. policy vis-a-vis China. I mean, those are always going to be greater temptations than getting into a fight with federal bureaucrats in D.C. And that's kind of the mismatch here, where I think people who are thinking about it, who have encountered the obstructionism and the obstacles inside a federal administration, um, legal conservatives who write and think about what this has done to distort and pervert the law, we all see it as like, well, this this is the game. This is the existential threat. I mean, yeah, China, uh, yes, fentanyl, the human trafficking, jobs reports, all important, but none of that is really possible for, to govern in those spaces until you get this right. I'm not sure uh, those who run presidential campaigns and those who will be staffing the next Republican uh, presidency understand that. Not yet. There's there's definitely lots of reasons to uh, say uh quote, uh, it's, it's, it's so over. There's definitely a, an uphill battle that needs to be done. You, you've listed a few of the challenges, right, that already exist with, with reform of the administrative state. You can also think of uh, employment protections for federal employees that render them unfireable. And, it, and there's just uh, difficulties that come with, prob- um, with the legislative reform project in itself. Uh, what do you think of some of the recent, because yeah, I think fortunately there has been a lot more attention from conservatives to this problem. Uh, like like recently, I know you wrote an article talking about Vivek Ramaswamy's specific proposal to address the administrative state. Do you want to walk us through how that succeeds or potentially falls short? Or, and what else should uh, other candidates who are, are running for, for president think about how to straddle this administrative state problem? Yeah, well, so I'll just say generally, the, the challenge for Republican candidates running for office is that this is actually a pretty complicated problem. But Number one, if you start to split, spell out the complexities for the average voter, it sounds impossible to fix. And candidates for office don't want to say, there's not really much I can do about it. We all agree it's an existential threat. In many ways, my hands are tied unless I want to be General Jackson in the White House. So instead, they proffer these kinds of fantastical plans to us. As I mentioned in the Vivek piece, that is an improvement. I know it doesn't sound like it, but we've actually progressed from the very sloppy, we should just have smaller government maxim with no plan, no details. What does that mean? Smaller, smaller on scale, uh, smaller in terms of you know economic footprint. What does it mean to be smaller? To the second stage, which was the, and when I'm president, I'm going to close this department, this department, and, and this department. How and why those three and, and not others? Um, that was also a very shallow and sloppy conversation. To now, we're getting a certain a cohort of candidates like Vivek who are actually articulating proposals for why we need to reduce the size and scale and authority of the administrative state and how they would do that. Uh, as I note in the piece in the American mind, unfortunately, Vivek's proposal is predicated on, I think, just a basic misreading of federal statute. 
Um, he really relies in, he has a three part plan and, and his part on essentially shuttering wholesale certain agencies and components of the federal government is predicated on a misreading of the Reorganization Act of, of 1977. Congress did not give the president unilateral authority to to shutter agencies or de- departments. Constitution doesn't contemplate that. So Constitution contemplates that Congress will create agencies and departments and the president shall administer them. That's the challenge. And look, the solution to it is twofold. One, have a president who campaigns on this nationally. And why? Because now you're actually electing members of Congress or call a constitutional convention. I don't care. I mean, however you want to do it, campaign on this nationally. Make it a national issue. And that gets to one of my theses about the presidency. Essentially, the modern presidency only has two sources of authority. The president can affix his signature to documents, executive orders, presidential memoranda, and then the classic bully pulpit. And we have not had a let's get into the League of Nations, Woodrow Wilson barnstorming tour from any Republican president about let's close these agencies and this is the authority I need to do it. So let's elect senators and, and members of the House to do it or let's call for a limited constitutional convention that would tackle these questions. That's number one. Number two is, you know, we we are always looking for the silver bullet. And that's what Schedule F or, you know, Vivek's plan on reorganization, it's a, I'm going to use this one little jujitsu move, and then it's all going to be taken care of. And that's how I know we're not serious about this, because this is going to be a war of attrition. It is going to, it has to be systematic. It has to be sort of high priority. And there is a way, essentially like a pincer movement of, of crowding out, uh, coming from, from different flanks of the objections to administrative state reform. And as I note in the, the chapter from up from conservatism, part of this is a change in mentality. I have not yet heard any Republican, significant Republican figure, policy wonk or advisor to presidents or presidential candidates themselves say, What's wrong with a patronage system? What's wrong? It worked for well over a century. And we had a very accountable and efficient government in the process. We built postal roads. We had far more significant and efficacious infrastructure projects than we have now. An entire canal system. We redredged, um, you know, the the uh, the Great Lakes. I mean, we essentially exerted our will on nature and built one of the most enterprising and advanced economies in the world all under a civil service that was run under the patronage system. Why is it wrong to say a president is going to appoint people who share his mission or ideological view? And if he's thrown out of office after four years, then his successor can do likewise. We're not there because everyone, as I said earlier, accepts the rules of the game as it's been given to us by Jimmy Carter. In this instance, you know, Carter's civil service reform, let's do away with merit testing. Let's do away with you know, successive rounds of interviews to ensure that candidates for civil service government jobs are actually qualified and have the competencies they claim to. Um, you know, the Pendleton Act, which was a progressive era reform, we're still living in that universe and no one has challenged those. And I can assure you that Schedule F designation is not going to solve this problem alone. It can be a part of the solution, but it alone is not the silver bullet. Not that we are looking for anything like a silver bullet here to the final answer of yours to our last question, but what would victory or what would substantial improvement look like? I I mean, I think what it would look like, it's something that uh, my former colleague, James Shirk, has mentioned in, in advocating for his Schedule F idea, which is you would have bureaucrats who are, excuse me, in charge with policy making authority 
they would actually be responsive to the ultimate arbiter of policy, which is the president of the United States. And so to give you a practical example, one of the projects I worked on in the White House involved the Tennessee Valley Authority. And everyone knows the story of the TVA created by Roosevelt to bring electricity, but also jobs and investment to Appalachia. Um, sure, good thing, but it's now this very strange hybrid creature. It's an independent agency, meaning it, like Amtrak, it operates like a corporation, but it's protected through government uh, government immunities. They have government employees. In fact, the CEO of the TVA is the highest remunerated government employee in America at about eight and a half million a year. Um, but the most interesting facet of that independent agency is that the CEO of the TVA is not fireable by the president of the United States. So he makes policy. He's a part of the federal government, but the president of the United States cannot remove whoever is making that policy, directing uh, the infrastructure grid in the Southeast that the TVA manages. He has no authority over those decisions. And that is something that has to change. And, and, and here's the fork on the road. People who, are, who object to that, then they need to make it plain to the people of the country. You go through this ritualistic exercise in electing a president, he has no more authority over this country than Queen Elizabeth had over, over England. He shows up for this thing called the State of the Union. He cuts ribbons. He greets soldiers when they come home. It's all ritualistic and ceremonial. And that's what we need to level with the American people. Don't worry about the presidential election. It's just an office for show. Or we need to be honest and say, yeah, this person has real authority. And what real authority looks like is it's not just giving speeches and signing documents. He can fire people. These people work for him. And he gets to, because of his electoral mandate, impress his will on the shape and trajectory of the federal government. That's what success would look like. Well, Theo, we can't thank you enough. Um, you're you're an extremely busy guy um, arguing on behalf of the state of Idaho. Um, but uh, to take some time for our listeners to discuss the chapter from up from conservatism that you authored on the administrative state. Um, this was a real treat. We encourage all of our listeners uh, to go out and buy a copy of the whole book. Um, we uh, we think that there are you know plenty of themes that run throughout the book that you'll you know you'll find of interest, and uh, in particular, um, you know Theo's. Um, uh, arguments do run through um, several other chapters in writing. So with that, um, we'll say goodbye for now, Theo, but I'm sure we'll see you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.